GBC Podcasts. Local voices on demand. Hello, thanks for listening to the Gibraltar Today podcast. I'm Jonathan Scott. Doctor and ultra-athlete Carl Alvarez joined us in the studio after his attempt, we think a successful attempt, at breaking the world record for the longest time performing alternating waves with battle ropes. Photographer Stephen Ermida was here to talk to us about the international project Atlas of Humanity, which saw him exhibit again alongside some 80 other international photographers documenting the world's ethnic cultures. And we spoke to Richard Bear and Kirsty Neal about a walk on Saturday for Jib Mission Africa called Camino de Gibraltar, the walk in Gibraltar, which will see them visit every Catholic church starting at Europa and finishing at Catlin Bay. But first, we've had some problems at the frontier in recent days. Those continued last night for those without a Gibraltar red ID card. But could the uncertainty at the frontier finally be unlocked in the coming weeks after the Spanish socialist leader Pedro Sanchez was re-elected for a second term as Prime Minister of Spain. He's broken a four-month-long political deadlock, securing enough support in Parliament to guarantee him that second term. 179 votes in his favour from the 350 available means that he should be sworn in by the King as the new Spanish Premier. We got an initial reaction from the Chief Minister Fabian Picardo and I was joined in the studio for a chat by my colleague Kevin Ruiz. I think the Besoya win, the reinstallment of Sanchez as the Spanish Premier, is possibly good news for Gibraltar. Um, this is Fabian Pigado, the Chief Minister's initial response to uh, Pedro Sanchez having secured the votes just uh, a short while ago. I have congratulated the newly elected President of Spain, Pedro Sanchez, on obtaining an absolute majority of the votes cast this morning in the Congreso at the end of the investiture debate. This now opens the possibility of retaking the negotiations on a treaty um, as soon as possible. A new government will now be appointed in Spain, a new cabinet. Um, There will be a Minister for Foreign Affairs, which is likely to be the current Minister for Foreign Affairs, which will enable us to proceed with matters uh, quickly and at pace. And I think this is a very good result for Gibraltar. At the end of this uh, debate, we have the same government in Spain that we had before as we had after the general election in Gibraltar, the same government in Gibraltar that we had before. There's now a window of opportunity to try and do this as soon as possible and before other elections in other jurisdictions start to kick in. That's just in from the Chief Minister Fabian Pigardo responding to um, Pedro Sanchez securing a second term in government as uh, the Spanish leader. Um, so, important takeaways there. He very does mention good result. Same government in Gibraltar, same government in Spain, to a degree. Um, technically, not entirely. Remember, the composition of the new caretaker government in Spain is now being made up with um, the junior partner, which is um, um, Sumar, Sumar, um, which brings a new ingredient. But we expect it to be uh, more or less what we've known in the past. Sumar, of course, has made it public. They are keen to get the treaty negotiations back on track. Um, 
They are a party um, advocating for workers' rights, um, advancements of workers' rights. They did visit the Campo de Gibraltar just before the July election, and they did have uh, they did make that promise to the more than ten thousand um, cross frontier workers. They would they would make it a priority to get that treaty concluded in order to safeguard their 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 working lives and their livelihood here in Gibraltar. But given the uncertainty that has prevailed uh, generally at the frontier and and, and about our future Mm -hmm. relationship with Spain in particular, but also the rest of the EU, uh, this is as good a result as Gibraltar could have hoped for in in the circumstances. Most definitely, most definitely. Uh, And Mr Picardo saying there that there's a window of opportunity Mm -hmm. now for uh, treaty talks to be uh, picked up and given what he said in the past, concluded potentially... As soon as possible. And, and the big thing there, you mentioned as well, window opportunity. How big is that window opportunity? The Spanish presidency of the European Union expires at the end of the year, 31st of December. We have a new, a new presidency starting in January, which could alter things again. So uh, the, the window could be as could tight be, uh, as the end of the year. The to next get something six weeks. Done. Yep. Um, okay, let's uh, let's remind ourselves as well about why this is so important because uh, we do have a, a story today which we've been running. Uh, problems at the frontier continuing for those who do not have a Gibraltar red ID card. Uh, we've had a few people get in touch about that. This is Tom. It was a couple of weeks ago, my colleague and myself, we had our passports stamped despite having uh, valid red ID cards. And uh, according to the Policia Nacional officer who was there, and uh, he told us that our passports had to be stamped if we were travelling outside the Campo de Hibata area. And he added that it was nothing new, that uh, this has existed since day one of Brexit. And he even kindly reminded us to get our passports stamped on the way back in. So there you go. So that's Tom, who's been in touch. Thank you, Tom. Um, John has also written in. He says, though we have red ID cards on two occasions, we've been stopped at the frontier in the evening by the same police officer asked if we're going to La Linea. On both occasions, we replied yes and were allowed to proceed. However, the second time round, he asked if there were, if those. So, uh, I think John asked the police officer, is there any problem going anywhere else? And the officer was very polite and explained if he was going any place other than La Linea, then passports should be stamped. Otherwise, we would be in Spain illegally. And um, and John says his understanding is that with the red ID card, it's uh, valid for travel within Spain. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, there, there is a little bit of uncertainty and there is a little bit of uh, this um, open to interpretation by different police officers uh, going about this because it is a a friendly relationship, uh, a friendly understanding uh, that is subject to uh, you know police officers sometimes interpreting it a little bit differently. It's confusion that we've been having um, basically since those interim measures expired as well. Um, confusion, interpretation, um, open to interpretation as well. Um, Spain has been in limbo, so hopefully now we can move stuff and um, get these practical issues on the ground sorted as soon as possible because of course. Gibraltar, La Linea, the hinterland, we're all cross-frontier people. Um, we we'll, we'll lead cross-frontier lives. And obviously, fluidity at the frontier just as important for us as it is to them as well. All right, Kevin Rees, uh, a big story. Uh, we'll continue to look at uh, when When do we expect the foreign minister in Spain to be appointed, we know? Um, that could be tomorrow or possibly in the next few days. But okay. things are going to move swiftly. Um, uh, Pedro Sanchez could be meeting the king as uh, early as this evening. On Radio Gibraltar and on GBC Television, Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. You may have noticed uh, that in recent days, Dr. Carl Alvarez 
attempted a Guinness World Record for the longest time performing alternate waves with battle ropes and it looks like at 3 hours and 57 minutes he may well have broken that world record. It is still subject to Guinness World Record review. Um, Dr. Alvarez joins us now. Uh, Do I say congratulations on an amazing attempt uh, and sort of a very nerve-wracking wait now for you no yeah absolutely um good afternoon jonathan thanks for inviting me on the program yes um now is the waiting game you know the the hard work is done um there was a lot of preparation that went into it um there are different ways of of trying to achieve a guinness world record one would be to invite an adjudicator over um from guinness um but that is a very expensive process and i did this off my own back um, and then, and the other is they send you a a list, a specification, a criteria that you need to meet, um, and then you need to submit all of the evidence. Uh, so I chose to go down that route, which is recording it absolutely. in a particular way. Yeah, so you need to show evidence that the, you're using all the correct equipment. So obviously, in this case, it was just a rope of a certain length and diameter and weight. So I sent evidence for that. They need the a video of the entire attempt from start to finish um and then any other evidence which includes timekeepers wi- uh, statements witness statements um and uh, a covering letter as well so my first thought really when i th- when i heard that you were doing this was how did that idea come about <laughs> battle ropes for, for for i mean like for that long that's just crazy yeah absolutely um the how it came about is is quite random. I mean, I, I'm someone who, as you know... You're an ultra athlete. Yeah, I, I like endurance events. Mm. And it, one day I was actually watching a Netflix um, documentary and it was completely unrelated. It was with regards to a vegan diet. But the presenter um, used a measure of how much better he felt when he changed to a vegan diet. Um, and the measure that he gave was... Previously, he'd been able to use battle ropes for 10 minutes and then he found that he had the energy to go on for an hour. Now, up until that point, I'd only ever thought of battle ropes as, you know, a max effort as people tend to use at the gym, you know, 30 seconds. All out. All out. Um, and I thought, hmm, like battle So I just thought, man, it'll, it'll mix up my training. So I went to the gym, started, like, did it for 10 minutes one day, 15, half an hour, when I reached an hour, which was the max that, that you'd the, heard of, that I'd heard of, bear in mind that I'm not a vegan, mm. um, I thought, I wonder what the world record is. <laughs> and and when I saw that it was three hours and three minutes, I thought, you know what, I, I think I think I can train for really this. even just it. even after having done just one hour, you thought, well, three hours, I could do that. Yeah, because because I know how well our bodies respond to training. Um, so I thought, you know, it's completely different, completely out there. Um, and I just thought, let's go for it. I'm not, a, I'm not a f- someone who's afraid of trying something and failing, you know, so. Fair play to you. But also, um, you're also not somebody who's alien, as you said, to, or a stranger to uh, endurance events. Um, for most people, the, the thought of doing any one thing for, uh, you know, three, four hours is, is you know, very, very uh, unlikely to, to yield uh, them <laughs> actually trying it. But, but, uh, but you, when you do your ultra running, you, you run for how long? I mean, uh, it depends on the events, but many of the events I do are multi-day events and some of the long stages can be, you know, up to 90, 100 kilometers. So I'd be running for, you know, anywhere from 10 to, you know, 16 hours. 
Oh, how do your knees and ankles feel after that? Uh, I think after a certain time, the knees and ankles just get numb and it becomes more of a, a of a head game, really. I mean, they do say, you know, that endurance is largely in, yeah. in your head. Once you can go for an hour, then, uh, you know, then it becomes about how long you can, you, you can keep your focus for. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think that that's really what, you know, that's the attraction to me. You know, I, I like really pushing my, my mental limits, limits as, as well as the physical. Uh, okay, so so this weight now, um, how long? Have you got any sort of indication uh, as to how long it'll take the Guinness World Records to review your submission? Yeah, so the, uh, the the advice that they give is that it can take anywhere from 8 to 12 weeks. I am hoping, I'm hopeful that it will be less because usually when I've communicated with them, you know, they, they tend to respond quicker. Um, so ideally, I'd like to know and hear before the new year. Oh, fingers crossed for you, man. Um, I mean, all indications are that you've done it, right? I mean, you, you went for longer, you, 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 you kept to all of their rules. Absolutely, I have. Fantastic. And, and how are your arms at the moment? <laughs> everyone, everyone has asked me about how my arms are. But, um, it, it, like, my arms were fine at the end. It was mainly my back and my knees from sort of maintaining that right. static posture uh, for four hours. But I'm good and I'm looking, uh, I'm already planning the next challenge. So you recovered already? Yeah, absolutely. Less than a week. Well, the man's a machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. Photographer Stephen Ermida has been part of Atlas of Humanity, uh, an international project uh, which uh, led to an exhibition, uh, the 10th of its kind, which Stephen attended together with some other 80 international photographers who have documented the world's ethnic cultures. Um, what, what, uh, what the project describes as the great mosaic of humanity. And it's uh, my pleasure to, to welcome you to the studio. Uh, Stephen, uh, w- what a pleasure it must have been for you to exhibit along some uh, really renowned international names in the world of photography. Yes, it, it was. Um, it was the first... It's not the first time I had exhibited in, uh, in Paris uh, as part of the Atlas of Humanity. Um, I did it last year, and, and the exhibition went on from Paris, then it moved to Milan, and then on to, on to New York. But it was the first time I attended the, the opening, and the thrill, it was absolutely thrilling, seeing hundreds of people attending the, the exhibition. The important thing is that um, this um, exhibition forms part of um, Paris Photo Week, which is the most Im- important um, photo festival in the world, but Paris basically um, owns photography. The, the big names, the big galleries are, are there. And um, it's, a, it's a week of, of photography in Paris, and it's buzzing. The, the, the city is, is buzzing with, the, with exhibitions. Uh, and uh, this one, which is part of the wider image nation Paris, which is the, it, it's, it's like the, it's just off the, the, the Paris photo. It's, it's officially part of the, of the Paris photo week, but not the actual um, main, uh, main event. It's like the fringe in, uh, sure. in, in Edinburgh. And image nation uh, were exhibiting five different collectives. And one of them was um, Atlas of Humanity of which I form part of that collective. And, and uh, tell us a little bit about how you went about um, 
ob- producing the the pictures that you made uh, in uh, in Central Africa. Uh, you know, what, what did it entail? How did you how did you first sort of get the brief? How did you choose what you were going to take pictures of? Well, what happens is that. Um all these are part all the, these exhibition of atlas of humanity the brief is basically um eyes on lens and um portrait portraits of of um of the different cultures of the different ethnic groups just looking at the um, at the lens of the portrait normally half body but it is portraits and not uh, there are occasional environmental portraits which document the environment but this is just documenting the face of humanity, the diversity of, of humanity. And what happens is that I travel, uh, I'm, I now classify myself as um, the new terminology is uh, humanity photographer, uh, which is a separate from or, or a sub-branch of uh, travel photography. And what I do is a couple of times a year I make trips to remote parts of the world and I go out and take primarily my main focus is, is the people. The people sure. and, the, and, the, and, and humanity, and this is what what I've been doing. Uh, but how do, how do you choose those places? Because w- w- I've read some of the the places that you visited, and uh, super interesting. But I've always asked, how did he decide to go there? How did he know to look for these people because in remote <laughs> tribes? In remote, in fact, I, uh, last month I was in, in Chad photographing um, the an important, uh, what possibly the, the, one of the best. Uh, tribal festival, the Warahol festival in Chad, which was absolutely amazing. I'm still working on 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 the material of of that, which may come into into next year's exhibition or future exhibitions. Essentially, it is um, the idea of these photographs, humanity photographers. It is a a close network of of photographers, and um, it is choosing the 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 tribes that are photogenic. And they have got an attraction. And the important thing is documenting these tribes before they pass because gradually these tribes um, are fading. The, the tradition of these tribes uh, are fading. And in fact, I have to say that it is the women in particular that keep the traditions alive. When you go to, to these remote villages, it is the women primarily that uh, still wear the, the national costumes or, or the way they, they dress, and the men tend to to move on to more Western attire. Um, Is that because they're sort of engaging just, in, in economic activity? You know, are they the ones who are looking for... For jobs or not, not necessarily? No, not, not, not necessarily. But it is primarily, I've, I've, what I've noticed is, is the women. But in this particular case, the, ex, the, the photo I exhibited was part of the Tukana tribe in North Kenya. And it was a, a they call them a Morano, which are the warriors. Basically, this uh, these tribes in, in, in Kenya, the young men, it's almost like national service. They have to spend seven years there as warriors to protect the tribe, to protect the, the cattle. And uh, it was my time there in, last year in Kenya, which I went specifically to photograph a number of tribes in northern Kenya that we photographed. The, we went to a number of villages and we managed to get the, um, the pictures of, of, these, um, of these tribes and then get them separate to do a photo shoot, which is what, what I exhibited for this one in particular. Right, so you get a variety of pictures, even though the ones that are exhibited for um, Atlas of Humanity are conform to the to the, portrait, to the, to the portrait standards. the eyes on the lens. Yeah, it's eyes on the lens. But then you do more general sort well, of... Normally I do try and document what the... Um, the tribe is about the the life of the tribe, and you get to realise 
how fragile and the harshness of of life in uh, particularly in Africa and the, and the, this particular trip and the last trip I went to to Chad no it really brought into focus how fragile and how um life and how tough it is in Russia in remote in, parts in, of in Africa remote parts of Africa because the, the, we had children dying in in the days that we were there which was very oh. which was very sad and very very poignant and for reasons that they wouldn't die in, in Gibraltar no it was malaria or meningitis so you do hear about the, these things and i have come across other situations but the, the last trip was particularly particularly sad one at the end and, and it must be hard to to go there and to experience that but but to sort of document it i mean do do you try not to get emotionally involved with the people you meet or yes you do you try not to get emotionally involved you tend to be detached from from the thing you take but you become friendly and then there's a big network of um the guides that that are with you the fixers then you then you you, you form this network and this network then broadens because other photographers that are doing the same thing as me as me we we sort of Network pull together, pull together, and say, "Well, the, the, if you're going to visit this tribe, I've got a contact. Uh, I've got a contact. There's a fixer. We'll do this and do that. And that's 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 how it is. No, yeah. because it's a, at the end of the day, it is a small small niche of photographers doing this specialized job because this is really documenting humanity, and it is not a subject that normally sells. It's something that it is either in exhibitions or, or in magazines. But it doesn't sure. it's not the landscape or, or wildlife which which are commercially for, um viable. But but this would help to raise attention, raise awareness, I should say, of um, the the you know the way that these people's traditions have been maintained over centuries, and the the, the fact that they are under threat. Um, presumably, your interactions with these uh, people who live in remote parts of of their countries uh, generally uh, it makes them feel valued. You know, the, the interactions are not sort of meaningless. No, even though you're you're sort of trying to remain detached, that there's empathy there. there is, there's a lot of empathy. As you, as you say, that's, that's the right word. But they, one thing that that um, that I've, I found with most of my tribes, most of my, most of my tribes, is that it is the friendliness and how welcoming the tribes are, the, the tribes or the ethnic groups. No, wherever you are, whether it's in Africa or, or Asia in particular, it is how friendly the people are, which teaches a lesson that in in all my travels, I tend to and I say this. To everybody that listen, in this world there is infinitely more good people than bad people, regardless of your station in life and regardless of where you come from. It's it's a lesson that uh, that I've taken on board, and I see it every every time I travel. Gibraltar today with Jonathan Scott. On Saturday, there's going to be a walk raising awareness and money for the charity Jib Mission Africa. Uh, they've organised El Camino de Gibraltar, the work, the walk in Gibraltar, which will visit uh, every Catholic church starting at Europa and finishing off at Catalan Bay. And it's uh, my pleasure to, to welcome to the Radio Gibraltar studio Richard Bear. Good afternoon good to afternoon. you, Richard. Good How are you? All right. Good, good to have yeah. you, and good afternoon also to Kirsty Neal. Um, good afternoon. Uh, what's the motivation for organising this walk? Well, uh, in reality, it's the eleventh time we have done this walk, and it's a walk with a difference. That I can say that if you want to do it as a pilgrimage for the starving children and the valuable children, 
You can also do it as a self-sacrifice for someone. You can do it as a fun walk with family members, friends and work colleagues, um, as a fitness walk. Or if someone is planning of doing the Camino de Santiago, this could be a small introduction. The course, purpose the... of the walk, obviously, is uh, to raise funds for Jeep Mission Africa. Uh, each participant will be contribute will contribute five pounds, and they will be given a um, accreditation card. This accreditation card will be signed at each of the churches, and once they have all the stamp at the churches, they will receive uh, certificates of appreciation. The nice. walk will start at the Shrine of Our Lady of Europe at 10 a.m. We will we will be there by. Nine o'clock. We'll be there from nine o'clock and you can register um, there at the shrine. Um, it's a great walking experience. Um, you meet up with other groups and individuals along the way and there's no, um, there's no, it's not a race. So everybody goes at their own pace. There's no risk neither because we go along like safe routes um, on the um, pavements and footpaths. Um, and there's no time limit to finish. I was going to say, yeah. how, what's the distance that it The distance takes is 9.5 kilometres. It's good. And it's I good want walk. to make a yes. point here. These 9.5 kilometres, we have to remember that in many of the villages that Jimmy Africa is supporting in Kenya and Ethiopia, many of these kids have to walk a double of that distance to fetch a canister and a bucket of fresh clean water. That's a reality. Yeah, so so really, I mean, it, it's it, when you think of what people have to do just to get what we take for granted in Gibraltar, but we can open the tap and achieve, yeah. uh, it, it's a short walk uh, yeah. in that context. No? And may I say something about the plan? Uh, from the Shine, we are going down to St. Bernard Church, from St. Bernard going to St. Joseph at St. Joseph Estate, from St. Joseph Estate we go to Sacred Heart Church, from Sacred Heart we go to the Cathedral St. Mary the Crown, then we go to St. Paul's Church. From St. Paul's, we walk north to St. Teresa's, and then we finish at Our Lady of Sorrow in Catalan Bay. Good stuff. It's yeah. a nice walk. And, yeah. and uh, will you stop for uh, a lunch along the way? What do you think? Or well, no? Well, we are planning a lunch at the end <laughs> of the walk. We are planning a lunch at the end of the walk, yes. Okay, so, so, uh, so, so you're starting at what time? We at start at 10 o'clock, but we'll be there from 9 o'clock and you can come and register then. There's obviously the buses um, that um, from Marketplace to Europa Point is bus number two. And then from Catlin Bay, if you want to get a bus, it's bus 408 that will take you back to Marketplace. Um, so I think it's very enjoyable. I've done it for years now. And I think it's quite interesting to see all the different churches and how they are completely different one from another. You know, you've got like Sacred Heart, which is kind of gothic in mm -hmm. architecture and style. And a lot of people don't go around to see, they only see their mm, local church true. or whatever. They don't see all of them. And it's quite interesting to see them all. So, so you'd start at 10 and, and you'd finish a few hours later, depending on how quickly on how people quickly. do it? Exactly. But, but you'd, you'd... Two and a half hours, more probably, at normal working pace. On average, right. But, so how, how long do you stop for in each church? Well, it depends on the groups and yeah. on individuals. I mean, you, enough to take it in, yeah. no? You're not yes. sort of zooming no, through. No, 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 we're not we zooming through. The point is to, to, to exactly. take in the atmosphere a bit and, and take right. in some of the features. Yeah. 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 
Good. Okay. Uh, and then uh, sort of the lunch is a completely voluntary thing if voluntary. people want yes. to take part. That's right. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. And, uh, and, and so Jib Mission Africa, tell us a little yeah. bit about um, Jib the Mission charity. Africa. Well, the, the charity has been going on for 30 years now. It was started by Father Josh Grima with Mario Hook and his wife, Mary. And then it was taken over by Dilip Taylor, who was our president. And Jib Mission Africa, the main <clears throat> point is to care for vulnerable children, disabled children, and we are looking over 30,000 people in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Brazil. Um, that, that's how many people the charity helps? That's right. 30,000? Yes. yes. Wow. At the moment, we are engaging what we are calling a food program. Obviously not feeding, but obviously to make them um, make their own um, gardens, gardens, vegetables, and so on, to be self-reliant. Mm. That is the main. And other NGOs are helping in the medication and the education. So, That's great. Mission Africa has expanded with Father Josh Grimm, the late Father Josh Grimm, and now with Father Geshi. And we have uh, contact in Malta, Brazil, North America, and even in Australia. So these NGOs, also voluntary workers, they they are supporting now the medical probe, the medical um, aspect, and also the, the humanitarian, humanitarian aspect, humanitarian thing as well. So we are feeding three thousand people in these three counties at the moment. That's a food program we are organizing. That's really impressive. Um, okay, and so if somebody would like to support the charity uh, or find out more about it you're on we're facebook, on facebook. Um, it's on jib mission africa um you can find us on facebook there and we've also got obviously uh, there's a donation line which is um it's also on facebook but i'll read it out here as well um and it's jib mission africa the account is jib mission africa they can make donations to it the sort code is 606060 and the account number is 47699078. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from 1 to 2, getting behind the headlines. And you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one. GBC Podcasts. Local voices on demand.